choosing this podcast for the BJSM community to listen to Dr. Sarah Halberg. She's an obesity doctor, and that means she's a professor at Indiana University School of Medicine. She works in the medically supervised weight loss clinic, so she has a ton of experience. And I was delighted by her TEDx video that I caught on, on YouTube. It's had nearly 1.5 million listens, and she's agreed to share the best of her stuff with us today. Thanks for joining the podcast, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Why don't you tell us how you got into this field and why you're excited that you've made some important discoveries? Yeah, so um, I got into this field actually way back when. Um, I have a master's degree in exercise physiology. So um, in my work 20 years ago, um, I worked with patients who suffered from obesity um, and then went into medical school and spent almost a decade in primary care, um, but then was asked to begin the weight loss clinic um, here at Indiana University Health um, Arnett and jumped at that opportunity. And in setting up this weight loss clinic, really discovered, if you will, a low carbohydrate, high fat diet. And when our clinic began, uh, that was the dietary approach we started with. And what we found is that weight loss really became kind of a secondary goal for us here. What we were seeing was patients' diabetes resolving. We were seeing incredible changes in people getting off of hundreds of units of insulin. I was absolutely floored with our clinical results and went out to see who all was doing this and was really pretty horrified, to be perfectly honest with you, to find that this was not being practiced widely. Um, and when we look at the research and the data on what happens with our standard of care approach to type 2 diabetes, we see that it becomes a progressive disease. Um, considered, quote unquote, incurable by most. And we were seeing anything but that in our clinic. So in my kind of passion to try to get this out to the mainstream, I jumped from being just a straight up clinician into the world of research. And we started a very large study, actually the largest and longest study um, on type 2 diabetes treatment with a ketogenic diet. Um, and the first results from that were just published. So um, I'm excited to be here to talk to you about this because I'd like to spread the word to people that um, type 2 diabetes does not have to be a progressive disease. And there is a lot that can be done about it. And your TEDx video starts with reversing diabetes, which is a big shock for many people. But for the BJSM audience, weight loss is important as well. And so can you just tell us how you got onto the idea of low-carbohydrate um, diet back at the time? Because it wasn't the conventional wisdom, given that we were meant to be being low-fat to avoid heart disease. Right. So we got caught up in this whole idea of pushing a low-fat diet because it was supposed to be good for us for all these many reasons. And unfortunately, what happened was really, I like to call it, you know, the trap of unintended consequences. So 
we told people to eat low fat for so long. And, you know, if you don't eat fat, we have to replace it with something. And unfortunately, what it got replaced with was a whole lot of carbohydrates. And so people wound up consuming these very high levels of carbohydrates. And what happened is that it caused their insulin levels to go up. And um, high levels of insulin, insulin being our fat storage hormone, um, really, I would say, has created a lot of detriment. Um, and I think that we absolutely need to go back to the recommendation uh, of low fat, rethink the actual physiology there and understand that that's not what's healthy for us, that in order to be healthy, we need to make sure that our insulin levels are not very high, that we bring them down. And since everything we eat is a carbohydrate, a protein, or a fat, and the only of those three what are called macronutrients that don't cause insulin to rise is fat. And of course, the one macronutrient that is that we've been told to avoid, which really from a physiologic standpoint does not make good sense. The elevated insulin levels that are caused by eating carbohydrates, uh, excessive amounts of them um, that are now in our diet, um, not only in this country, but across the world, have caused a lot of health consequences. I think you have a real advantage having done an exercise physiology degree before medicine, so you can combine those two things. I'm going to ask you to tell us more about insulin because if people think about thyroid, they know what it does. I think insulin has been a sleeper in terms of its general effect on the body other than it driving glucose into muscle. Why is insulin in high levels bad? So first, let's talk about really low levels of insulin. So really low levels or absent levels of insulin, that's type 1 diabetes. And so absence of insulin is a bad thing. I like to say to our patients that everybody needs a little bit of insulin, but if you have more than a little bit of insulin, this is where the health consequences come in. So again, due to the way that we've been eating, what we've had is the opposite of type one diabetes, again, low to no insulin, which is very elevated levels of insulin. Why is that a problem? It's a problem for a couple reasons. Number one, insulin is actually a growth hormone and can really increase inflammation in our bodies. So that's a big problem because we know that inflammation is at the heart of many of our modern day diseases. And this is why we are seeing type two diabetes, which begins with elevated insulin levels, being associated with so many of our quote unquote modern day diseases such as cancers and Alzheimer's, and the list really goes on and on. So again, elevated insulin levels, insulin being a growth hormone can drive inflammation. But insulin is also our fat storage hormone. And having really elevated levels of our fat storage hormone has come at a great detriment um, to many people. So again, if your, if your insulin levels are elevated, your body essentially goes in to a locked mode on carbohydrates. You really can get your energy almost only exclusively from carbohydrates because your body is on storage mode for the fats. 
So we're trying to push as much of the fats into storage as possible. And so again, what we see is that this creates the epidemic, I would call it right now, of obesity and type 2 diabetes that we see occurring. Um, when someone uh, consumes uh, a meal uh, that happens to be high in carbohydrates, what's going to happen with that meal is as those carbohydrates rush into the system as glucose or blood sugar, it's going to cause the blood sugar to rise. It's also going to cause the insulin levels to rise. And why does the insulin rise along with the blood sugar? The answer to that is a rising insulin level is what's going to help us dispose of the blood sugar. In other words, if we eat, let's just say we consume a cup of rice. A cup of rice actually has 50 grams approximately of carbohydrates. And if you funnel all those into your circulation at once, your blood sugar would skyrocket from a normal blood sugar of say 100 up to close to 1,000 if we didn't have a glucose disposal system in place. Well, obviously when you eat, you don't all of a sudden get a blood sugar of 1,000. Why is that? Because as the glucose starts to rise, insulin rises along with it and insulin pushes any excess glucose out into our cells. I like to say that insulin is really the key that will unlock the cells that surround literally our circulatory system so that as glucose goes up in our circulation, it can be pushed out into the cells so we can maintain a normal blood sugar level. But when someone has insulin resistance, what it really is, is that the key that's supposed to open the door, which is insulin, does not fit. The key doesn't fit. Our bodies are resistant to it. And so what our body does to make up for this is it makes more keys. It'll literally flood our system with lots and lots of keys. Our insulin levels will rise and they'll rise. And at some point, something will get the door open so that we can push glucose out of the circulation to keep our blood sugars normal. And that system is going to work. It's going to work for a while, years even, or even decades. But there's two big problems that come about with this. Number one, now we've had these supraphysiologic levels of insulin, our fat storage, hormone around for many years. And we can really start to appreciate how type 2 diabetes and obesity are so closely linked. But the second big problem is when someone is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, on average, about half of the cells that actually make insulin have died from overuse because they've been taxed or forced to put out these very high levels of insulin for so many years. And so when the body can no longer put up with the production of insulin it needs, that's when our blood sugars start to rise. That's type 2 diabetes. Sarah, does that explain why people put on weight in middle age when they eat the same food as they've been eating when they were younger and even if their exercise levels are about the same? Well, I 
think that's kind of a million dollar question. I think that what we know is that insulin resistance um, definitely increases as people get older. You know, we talk about the skyrocketing type two diabetes rates in this country, um, and they are skyrocketing. But, you know, it's actually even worse when you look at patients who are over 65. I mean, uh, 25% of people over the age of 65 have type 2 diabetes. So that's probably a connection that we have more susceptibility to this insulin resistance um, and the obesity that goes along with it the older that we get. And let's talk about some practical implications. What food do you recommend and what's your own diet perhaps? Well, I like to work with patients specifically who have metabolic disease. Um, so that is obesity and the problems that come along with it, like type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, prediabetes, and lipid disorders. And for this patient population, I recommend a carbohydrate-restricted diet. Um, and I want to just kind of make a note here that it's carbohydrate restricted. It's not a no carbohydrate diet because we hear that a lot. Oh, she doesn't eat carbs. Well, that's not true. It's a low carbohydrate, moderate protein. So we really counsel people to not overconsume protein. So it's not a high protein diet. And what we are filling in with the, the lower levels of carbohydrates and moderate protein is we're filling in with fat. So our patients consume a um, significant amount of fat. And I will tell you that um, I'm fortunate enough not to have suffered from type 2 diabetes or metabolic disease, but I eat this way and have for years because I feel fantastic doing it. Um, so, you know, my day may start out with a low-carb, you know, hemp-based cereal uh, with a little cream in it for breakfast. And then a typical lunch for me is salad. Um, with lots of sources of whole food fats, such as olive oil, uh, olive oil olives, avocado, nuts, um, and seeds. And then, you know, a typical dinner in our house may um, consist of a chicken casserole um, with cheese and cream, followed by vegetables of a million sorts. Uh, the popular thing in our house right now is Brussels sprouts. So, um, many, many different things uh, come in, and then we generally have some sort of a dessert. Um, berries with cream is a simple thing, but there are so many different whole food, uh, low-carb desserts that can be enjoyed as well. Um, well, you know, other options for breakfast would be omelets, um, bacon, eggs, full-fat yogurt, um, and I like to tell patients, you know, get the plain full fat yogurt, put a little nuts or peanut butter in there. They can be all delicious and satisfying breakfasts. And you reminded me, one of the concerns with the meat diets is the epidemiological suggestion that uh, meat's associated with bowel cancer. Yeah, the evidence on that is incredibly weak. Um, and interestingly, you know, uh, you go in and there was an oral presentation of a large meta-analysis on this, actually, that was a negative study that was never published. So I, I just really question the um, science behind that. But if people don't want to eat meat, on the other hand, the, the thing is they don't need to. So, you know, one of the things is people say, oh, a low-carbohydrate diet, that's a high-meat diet. Well, actually, it can't be a high-meat diet. That's not true. It's not based in fact. 
if you eat a high meat diet, then you're having a high protein diet. And um, that would be exactly against the advice that we give to patients. So uh, vegetarians can 100% do this uh, um, type of lifestyle without any concerns. Just to wrap it up, Sarah, you've got some exciting new data. Um, do you want to point us towards your recent study in Journal of Medical Internet Research, JMIR? So I'd love to talk about our trial. So the paper that was just published um, is the early data from a large and long trial looking at a low-carb, high-fat diet um, on type 2 diabetes. So we enrolled almost 400 patients in the treatment arm of our study, and the patients enrolled had a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes or prediabetes and metabolic syndrome. So over two-thirds of the treatment patients had a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, and this paper re reports on the results from those patients after the first 10 weeks. And we see some incredibly dramatic results. So the average A1C, which is a marker of diabetes control, um, was 7.6, which represents uncontrolled diabetes um, at the onset of the trial. And after only 10 weeks, we were able to see a major reduction down to an A1C of 6.5, which is very significant. But the thing is that these patients had their blood sugars improve dramatically while their medications were being decreased. So these are things um, that were thought to not be able to be done at the same time. Again, simultaneously, blood sugars improved significantly and medications were decreased. For example, in the patients who came into the trial on insulin, at 10 weeks, 89% of those patients had their insulin decreased or totally eliminated, yet they still had a major drop in their A1C representing improvement of blood sugar. And so the thing that really is significant about this trial is number one, the dramatic results we got but number two was the technology that was used to get these results. So what I like to always say to patients is making a lifestyle change is hard. If it was easy, everyone would do it. And so patients who are embarking on a lifestyle change so that they can improve their health and resolve their type two diabetes need support and they need personalization. And so one of the reasons that this trial um, we believe was so successful was that patients were able to get this support and their education through a digital um, application. So patients were assigned a health coach um, and patients were um, given access to an app where they got education, they were able to communicate with their health coach 24-7, and we believe that this not only led to the high success rates we see, but also, and this may even be more important, the very high retention rates that we see. Because at this phase of the trial, over 90% of the patients, which is a very unusually high uh, number, were still active in the trial. So again, 
a digitally delivered um, method of supporting patients as they embark upon lifestyle changes has now been shown to be very successful. And to wrap it up, Sarah, you're working with one of the pioneers in the field, Stephen Finney, and tell us how you are trying to scale up these discoveries. Well, we know um, for years now in my clinic here at Indiana University Health that a um, low carbohydrate diet um, can make incredibly wonderful life uh, changes for people um, and help get type 2 diabetes into um, remission and, and control other metabolic diseases. The question really is, how do you scale it? So I am honored to work with Dr. Steve Finney, who is one of the founders at Verta Health. Uh, the company that sponsored this trial and that I am also um, the medical director for. Um, and our goal is to reverse type 2 diabetes in 100 million people um, by the year 2025. And in order to do that and to scale a lifestyle change that's healthy for people, um, we're using technology. Um, again, in many of the ways that I described, but um, very important that it's possible um, uh, to personalize a lifestyle change approach um, and do it uh, at scale. Thanks, Sarah. That sounds like a lot of resources for folks to be able to get to. Thanks a lot for your time today. It was wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. That was Sarah Halberg from Indiana University Health, and we're really open to your comments on these topics. I encourage you to look at her TEDx talk on YouTube. I think you'll really enjoy how she explains the logic uh, behind her call that high insulin levels are not healthy. I hope you get a chance to have an active day and, of course, that you're surrounded by healthy food choices. 